Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 99 with our guest, John David Mann. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing. Hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. You're tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. Our guest today is truly one of my favorite people and one of the most genuine people you'll ever come across. You'll see exactly what I mean. You may know him as the international and New York Times bestselling co-author of The Go-Giver, which also includes the entire Go-Giver series of books. And combined, his books have sold more than 3 million copies. That's no small feat, I assure you that. Funny enough, he never planned to go into business. It just seemed to keep working out that way. Imagine that. Meet John David Mann. John has been creating careers since he was a teenager. Before turning to business and journalism, he forged a successful career as a concert cellist and prize-winning composer. My goodness, it doesn't stop there. At age 17, he and a few friends, I don't know, started their own high school in New Jersey. You know, little things. And along the way, he founded one food distribution business, a graphic design business, and two publishing companies. Again, all in addition to his now extraordinary career as an esteemed author of some of the world's most powerful and influential books. His latest book is The Latte Factor, Why You Don't Have to Be Rich to Live Rich. No matter where you are in your entrepreneurial journey, this is the episode for you. Let's welcome my man. It's John David Mann. How are you, John? I'm excellent. Thank you. I, I feel like I'm Tom Sawyer listening to his, listen to his, his eulogy. It's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, I love hearing so that yeah, so, so thank you for being here. Um, I, I love being able to um, talk with you because you just, there's so much. So, so let's get right into this. I know some of the facts on paper. You just wrote your 30th book, 30th book in what I've learned 12 years time. My goodness, that's extraordinary. I also learned that your second written book was the go-giver of all things. And I know that we could talk all day about that journey. So we'll talk all, you know, in, in part about that. But I know that every one of your 30 books, except one, were co-authored. 
with with yeah. a with a with a writing partner. So I want to get your take on the element of collaboration because I personally I've always loved collaboration. You know, I spent 15 years in the uh, entertainment industry, and I I loved how art and and creative things came together. Everybody contributing their piece. And I know that no successful business, no matter where the venture is, happens in a bubble by one person. You need collaboration. But what's the draw for you to, to collaborate writing style with somebody? And how has that process been? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. I, and I'm not sure how I, how I fell into this, into this business model. But um, I, I remember that when I was a kid, my, my, uh, my father was a choral conductor. He was uh, his career is built on the music of Haydn, uh, Handel, Bach, but especially Handel and Bach and the great choral works. And um, he was a musicologist and sort of one of the world's leading experts on, on, on the choral works of Handel. And so I, I grew up steeped in chor great choral music. And I remember my mom telling me that uh, she thought that, com that com great composers achieved a much greater level when they were setting text that was truly timeless classic you know amazing text and that when they would be setting like lesser texts contemporary writers that were that were not so timeless the music would suffer and that really made an impression on me and i i um writing co-writing with somebody collaborating with somebody is a little bit like setting text to music because you're starting with something that you didn't create something that, that's kind of given to you like if i sit down with bob berg um Bob's not a good example because in the Go-Giver books, there was probably more of a true 50-50 mix of the two of us. Uh, it's a good, they're all good examples. But so there, there's a bunch of Bob in the Go-Giver books, but there's also a bunch of me in the Go-Giver books. And even in the more extreme examples, like all the books I've written with former Navy SEAL Brandon Webb, my special operations buddy. Um, Brandon was an exceptional Navy SEAL sniper. He came back to the U.S. after serving in Afghanistan and taught advanced sniper courses and eventually ran the Navy SEAL sniper program, which is, which is often held to be the toughest course in the world. So this is like an uber military guy. I got no military background. I mean, it's a completely foreign world to me, right? But we sit down and collaborate. We've done six books together, starting with his, his memoir. Even in that, where I'm clearly writing his life story, his material, I bring a bunch of myself to it as well. You know, so there's a whole bunch in those books that is suggested by something that happened to Brandon or that Brandon said or Brandon thought, but I'm bringing my own experiences, my own thoughts, my own ideas, and we just meld, we mesh. So mm. there's that meshing of two minds, two missions, two life experiences. And it's like I'm setting somebody else's thoughts to music. Mm. And uh, that's so, it, it's, I think it's even like that with business, you know, with, with great collaborators, with true collaborators, you're bringing something of yourself to whatever you do and you're joining with somebody else and they bring something to the party. I have turned down a lot of writing jobs, um, a lot of book projects that had promise, but you know, we, I, I just didn't, I didn't feel the mesh. I didn't feel the click. So it's, mm. it's an important, it's important thing. As I mentioned in the intro, you've, from age 17, where, my goodness, you and your friends, you started a high school, magnificent, um, and then you went on to all these other business ventures, never really um, expecting to find yourself in these roles. Is there a sense of your, your life in that era, and perhaps still today, takes on an element of reinvention? Oh, 
Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, when I was 13, my, uh, my mom was a teacher of Greek mythology and she was going to take a bunch of school kids, including myself, to Greece to perform a play, but Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus, you know, ancient Greek play in the theater where, where it was originally performed. Um, so we were getting this play ready. Uh, we're all teenagers, junior high. And she said to me, she said, I need eight of these choruses set to music. Would you write the music for that? And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't know how to write music. And she said, well, yeah, sure you do. Um, I can't do that. She said, yeah, sure you can. She, uh, uh, and I did. And that was one of the pieces that, that won a prize early, early in those, those, those early years. She inculcated me with this idea, which uh, I think is probably a very common baby boomer parent idea, <laughs> that you could do whatever you set out to. And I just, I believed her. Hmm. But yeah, the reinvention thing is very real because I, I, I never sat down and said, okay, I think that at this time in my life, it would be prudent for me to do X, Y, Z. I, I never made that kind of conscious planned career choice as much as my interests and my enthusiasms and my, my curiosity kind of took me into a new area that I just really wanted to explore. And, uh, and in the course, I, I, I've reinvented myself, you know, maybe five, six, seven times. And there's a pragmatic uh, dimension to that, which is like, how do you make money? <laughs> because when you lay down a career that's, that's established to some extent, and you pick up something brand new, it's like, dude, how do you survive? I mean, you, how do you not go broke? So, and it's, it has, I will, you know, there have been many lean years. And by lean, I mean like broke years. So it's not been an easy path. But, did you have to look at that? Because I think the trap is some people might see that journey and think, well, you failed here, you failed here, you failed here. Hmm. How did you define them or look at them? Uh, yeah, it, it <laughs> maybe more like a sort of a career ADD. Not so much as failing as much as I've done this for a while and I kind of got this. I don't have this like I'm the world's greatest expert, but I got this for me. I got this enough so I, you know, I get it. And, but, but I want to move on. I want to do something else. I want to, as a concert cellist, I was never going to, you know, be the next Rostropovich or whatever. I was not the world's greatest cellist, but I was pretty good. I was okay. I could have established a career playing the cello. I'd done that for the rest of my life, but I'd kind of done that and I'd had enough. And I really, I was looking for something else. Always looking for something else. Hmm. I love the, um, obviously, any, any entrepreneur has to know of, if not devour annually, the Go-Giver book. And really, um, any of its total of four in the series today, right? Yeah. So, um, the, but, but the original Go-Giver, like I said, your second book, what a, what a sophomore thing to come to the table with, <laughs> um, nearing a million copies sold. A couple of questions around this. First, um, what does it mean to you today to really acknowledge a million copies of a book sold? And also, did you guys, was there any sense of, you know what, this could be a thing going into it? You know, you always hear people talk about, you know, something that's been a success and they say, did you ever think it would be this great? It says, no, we never imagined. Well, yes, we totally imagined. <laughs> we, both Bob and I, absolutely believe this would be you know, call it the, the uh, untutored arrogance of youth or whatever, but we totally believed that we had a great concept. We had a book that would, that would, be, that would be big. We just, we didn't believe that. We had no clue how to do it. And I've told the story before, but we, had, we didn't have an agent. We didn't have publishing connections. We had kind of nothing. And 
by, by these sort of circuitous, unlikely, almost impossible paths crossing of this and that, uh, we, I ended up connecting with the agent who had sold the, the, uh, the One Minute Manager back mm. in 1980, which of course was a gigantic parable. Go-Giver being a parable, sort of slotted into the business world like that was, was a perfect agent at, for the time. And she's been my agent ever since. And, and she brought the book to New York. And by the way, the book was turned down 23 times um, by publishers. It was turned down and turned down and turned down and turned down and before it was finally uh, taken and published. So okay, it was so, a long, weird road. So, so you're one of those stories. Today, almost um, nearing a million copies sold, translated to how many languages? Uh, over, over two dozen. Over two dozen languages, nearing a million copies. And tell me, turned down 23 times, what does that look like? So you guys have the manuscript, you have everything, you, you have somebody even on your side pushing it and trying to get the publisher. And yes. it, like, like literally, hey, do you guys want to publish this? No. Okay. And then so is it like, right. it, it, is it like, a, like a punch in the gut every time and you have to figure out what's, what the fate of this is going to be? Yeah, it, and, and that's a really good question because it's not black and white. Yes, it's a punch in the gut every time. It still is. I, you know, I hate it when, when a book gets rejected. But let me tell you that the first, I don't know, 16, 17, it came in two waves. First, we got over a dozen rejections. <laughs> and then uh, we, the agent said, okay, we gotta, let's, let's take this back and, and sit on this for a while. And we went and we completely revised the manuscript. Oh, you uh, we did? Spent, okay. We did. Spent maybe nine months or so and made it a, a, almost a different book. I mean, we did a lot of revision, every page, lots of red ink. And then went back to New York a second time. We got over a dozen rejections the second time, but that was the time it was, it was accepted. So here's the deal about that. Those first dozen rejections, they were right. They were right to reject it. Mm. All the publishers who said no, they were right. It wasn't ready. And you know what? If one of them had said yes, this book wouldn't be at a million sales. This book Ooh. wouldn't be in four languages. Chills, yeah. chills. I want to hear that again. The first dozen, yeah. Tell me that again. The first dozen rejections were right because? It wasn't ready. The thing was not ready. Um, as I said, it went through massive revisions. Most of the revision, in the case of The Go-Giver, most of the revising was deleting. Most of the revising was paring it down, making it simpler, taking stuff out. Um, we wrote a brand new last chapter. Uh, we did, you know, we changed the gender of one character, Rachel, Rachel's famous coffee was originally Raphael. Oh my she gosh. was a guy. Wow. Um, you know, so we changed some things. It was still the same book, same laws, same text. You'd recognize the book, but it wasn't ready. And, and here's my point about that. You hear all these stories, you hear all these Colonel Sanders stories, right? These chicken soup for the soul stories about the people who were rejected like 60 times, hundred times, 600 times, but they knew they were right. They knew they were right. And those rejections were wrong. Well, Sometimes the rejections are right. Sometimes you're not, you know, the chicken soup isn't ready. Sometimes the, 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 the chicken recipe is not right yet. So it's this combination. And, I, and this is difficult because this is holding two contradictory things in your hands at the same time, which I think every entrepreneur needs to be able to do. On the one hand, you need to believe in yourself and what you're doing. Absolutely. You need to have this unshakable faith in your mission and what you're doing. But on the other hand, you need to keep one ear open to the world and to the qualified voices in the world telling you no, because they know something you don't know. They see something about you and what you're doing that you don't see. They have experiences you don't have. And it's this combination of 
staying solid in your faith and in yourself, but also being open to suggestion. Uh, it, it's almost like people say, what's the, what's the secret to success? I say, you've got to have the arrogance of a teenager and the humility of a Buddhist monk at the same time. Wow. It's, it, it's amazing. Again, I love how um, you, any entrepreneur can really make that applicable that if, if you're rejected in some way, if you're going for something and you get a no or the, no The response, investor says no. The investor yeah. says no. The customers say no. The market says no. Whatever. Yes. It might not just, it, it might be you and your offer, your delivery, your persona, whatever, a whole host of things, but it also might be the timing. It's like, well, just not now. Keep doing what you're doing, but maybe, you know, just like let it simmer and brew a little bit. I know we spoke about that. The Go-Giver was turned into um, over two dozen different languages. You actually have um, the book uh, in Lithuanian, right? Tell me about that. <laughs> yes, I will. That's, I love this story. So here you go. I can't tell you how the title because I can't pronounce it. I don't know what it means. What book is that? This is called The Go-Giver. But now the cover is vastly different than what we know The Go-Giver cover to look like. Yeah, yeah, it's totally. I don't have a, I don't have a Go-Giver within reach. I'd have to leave my desk to get it. But yeah, it's, it is vastly different. And so here's the deal. We give up the right. I mean, we, when we sell the rights to a foreign translation, it's their baby. It's their project from soup to nuts, from A to Z. Uh, the story of this one is uh, my favorite. Um, the, there was a woman, Naringa, I can't pronounce her last name, charming, lovely young woman living in New York as, uh, in London, expat, Lithuanian expat. And she read The Go-Giver and she fell in love with it. And she wanted her countrymen in Lithuania to be able to read it. So she left London, moved back to Lithuania to establish her own publishing company so that she could buy the rights to the book and translate it and publish it in Lithuanian. And she did. And here it is. And so now she lives in Lithuania and, and uh, wow. I, I'm just talk about reinventing yourself. She, she left a promising software career in London to go become a startup publisher to publish this book. Show me hey. the cover of your, your most recent book, which I love. It's called uh, the latte factor. Why you don't have to be rich to live rich. Um, in a few moments, I want to hear the, the basis and the pre, uh, premise of this. Beautiful. But Beautiful. more importantly, um, tell me the importance of cover design. And I know we can apply this to entrepreneurs. Because cover yeah. design, among everything in the writing process, um, the title, the colors, the content, the testimonials, the uh, uh, layout, the feel of the yeah. book, Cover design has to be one of the top three most important factors, yes? It is. It is. I mean, I think that they're the top three, and there are top three, mm -hmm. and um, they, they are. And, and this is applicable to some extent to, to, to uh, any other area of, of you know, market creativity. But three critical uh, issues for the, for, the, for the success of a book. And the first is the concept. And by concept, I mean title. And by, by title, I mean concept. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> You know, the, the book, and, and, and with the case of The Go-Giver, we had the title before we had anything else. The concept and the title were there first. Really? Same, yeah. same thing true with The Latte Factor. David Bach, my co-author, had been teaching about The Latte Factor for 25 years. So, But some books I've done, we don't find the title till the end, near the end of the process. It, it varies depending. Yeah. But the concept, the central concept, um, in, in the film industry, they call this high concept. The, the, the concept of the book has got to be, you can call it a hook. It's got to be something that is unique, that catches your imagination, and that almost from the word go, 
you, you have a sense of what, it, of what it's about. You may not know everything, but you get a sense of it just from hearing the title and you go, oh, uh, there's something great if there's something that is a, a cognitive dissonance about that. Like for example, the go-giver is obviously a take on go-getter. Yeah. Because okay? you got go-getters and now you got the go-giver. So there's, there's a cognitive dissonance like go-giver, go wait a minute, go-getter, go-giver. You know, your mind does a little bit of huh. And that little bit of a huh is a hook. So your title's got to have something that immediately sparks curiosity and interest, particularly in your market group, whatever that might be. I mean, if you're writing a you know, memoir of you know, Barack Obama or the Dalai Lama or somebody that everybody knows, that's the hook. You're yeah. done. So the hook, the title is number one. And I, I just have, want to say really quick, I, I'm sorry, I, I, um, I just want to apply this that uh, when we're talking about title, it's not only to a book you might be writing, but it could be to right. any product, any service, any video, yes. any yes. blog article, any, yep. any website, anything you are, your, your business title, your program, your pro, anything, it, it's all applicable. Go ahead. What you do uniquely that immediately causes interest. And, um, I have missed this. I have, I have, has, as, I have as many books that have missed this as I have books that have got this, maybe more. It was easy to miss. So you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's a critical, the, the hook, the uniqueness, that's number one. Number two is the cover, you know, cover design. Uh, obviously, it, it, in the old days, people bought books by going to bookstores and looking at them on shelves. They still do, only this is the bookshelf. Mm. This, is where people buy, this is where people buy books. More books are bought on your phone than anywhere else more than on laptops, more than on bookshelves physically. So covers, you, you, covers have to work on the phone. And uh, cover, good cover designers now will, will take into account what is this gonna look like on a thumbnail, not on a eight and a half by 11 or, or a five by seven book. Wow, wow, on a thumbnail, imagine that, that they have to shrink it down yeah. and say, how, what is this gonna, is, right, is it gonna get attention scrolling? Is it gonna, right? Yes. Yeah, so everything, the colors, the font, the design, is there going to be a picture or no picture, all that. And by the way, that's not, you know, uh, we don't do that. That's, that's, that's part of, the, of having a great cover designer. Part of what you get with a good publishing company, you hope. I've had publishing companies, in my opinion, blow the cover. I got some great books I've done that I think the cover just kind of, kind of sucked and didn't, didn't do well. So, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's an art more than a science. It's both, really. So three items, three elements, the, the concept and title the cover. And the third is the, let's call it the, the first 90 seconds experience, the customer experience. And in the case of a book, it's what's on the flat, what's on the flat, what's on the back, and what's on the first page. Call it the first few pages, but really it's the first page. There's this truism in, in the, it's more than, it's just truth in the screenwriting world, in, in the film industry. If you're a screenwriter, you know that the first page, your screen, screenplay is going to be either read or put on a slush pile by the first page. And that's just the truth. 120-page screenplay. I, I, um, wow. I studied with a great screenwriting teacher in Hollywood. In fact, I took a bunch of courses with him just before we wrote The Go-Giver. And I credit him to some extent to Go-Giver's success because I was just steeped in this great writing teaching right before we, Bob and I wrote this book. And he has a whole six-week course on the first page of the screenplay. It's that important. So how a book, how a book opens, how a book starts, the flap, the back, you know, the initially, if people read the first two, three, four pages and they're not connecting, they're not going to read the book. So mm. there you go.
Which I, in entrepreneurial terms is like when the person walks in your storefront, when the person first gets you on the phone, when the person first goes to your website, your Facebook page, whatever that initial experience is, that experience is gold, you hope, and not pewter. Yeah. And that's one of the things I teach. Um, I, one of the things I do is also help podcast hosts create the best interview ever, right? Because that's yeah. a goal I've learned I want to do. I want to make this for you, John, your best interview ever. And there are specific ways that I can teach that I do that I bring to the table. But one of them is absolutely what you just alluded to. It's everything. If, if you and I didn't have a relationship and I reached out to you and I said, hey, would you love to be a guest on my show? What are you, uh, all, your only decision is yes or no. And in order for you to responsibly make that decision, what might you do? What are you going to do? You're going to click on one, two, or a few of my links to determine if there's anything there. You're going to make a very quick decision because my God, you're busy. You don't know me. Yeah. You don't have time to waste. What do you care? What do you know? So everything in my world that you could possibly click on needs to be considering that 90 second rule, I got to make sure if you go to my website, it looks great. If you go to my LinkedIn profile, it's great. If you Google me, it looks great. If you look at my podcast page on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever it is that you're like, oh my God, he's got a hundred episodes. Okay. He might know what he's doing. I, I, I want to, this is great. I'll do it. Or um, no, you know, there's just nothing there. So everything yeah. needs to be solid in place, not just one or two things. Or like, if you go to my Facebook page and you're going to quickly scroll and you're going to look, oh, I am deliberate of what I put out on social to make sure that it aligns with my message, with my voice, with my brand. And that somebody like you in a minute will say, this guy's, he's good. I like him. I want to be on his show. Besides he's from Jersey. So, Hey, and it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Totally right. You know, one of the best things I ever learned about public speaking, um, which I don't do much now, but I, I, in an earlier incarnation, I did a bunch of that, was the first 10 seconds. You know, how many speakers get up on the stage after the introduction, they go, <clears throat> tap, tap, tap. You hear me okay? Everybody good? Hey, <clears throat> what a great looking crowd. Man, you've already lost me. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> what I want to hear is you stand up and you go, it was the worst moment of my life. Or I want to I wanna have some opening line that makes me go, boom. What yeah. is he going to talk about? Those yeah. first 30 seconds are so precious. You can't waste them. By yeah. the way, the, I mentioned those three things, concept, cover, initial 90 seconds experience. The, that's the tip of the iceberg that's so critical. The iceberg itself is, of course, the quality of the book. You know, when they, when they get to chapter 10, chapter yeah. 14, are they still having a wow experience? And that's, you know, obviously yeah. you've got to have the, the greatest thing you can possibly have, best writing, best concept, best service, whatever it, it is in your, in your business context. But, and but, how does one achieve that? Time in part, learning of the craft, putting in the effort, learning, growing. How does one achieve that element of success and result as they define it? Uh, I am a huge believer in, um, in, it's that thing of the arrogance of a teenager, the humility of a Buddhist monk, the humility of the Buddhist monk part comes in with continually learning, 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 learning. I'm a big believer in mentors. I have a few writing mentors that I, I am immensely grateful to, that I turn to, um, mostly through their online teaching rather than one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, uh, my agent is a mentor that is one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I, I go to her for her take on a manuscript, on a concept, on a book. Um, so, you know, Really quality mentors are so crucial. For a writer, for me, uh, the number one important thing is reading. You know, reading quality books. I read and read and read and read. If you don't read, you can't write. And yes. if you're 
you know, whatever, whatever you're in the business of outputting, yes, you've got to, you got to input that highest quality of that, of that thing. If you're Same. a dancer, go, yeah. go experience dance. If you're in business, go experience businesses. You, know? you, you have to. I say the exact same thing, speaking again of the podcast experience. If I want to continue yeah. to be the best podcast host and creator I can be, guess what I do every single morning? I'm, I'm running. I'm on the treadmill. I listen to something. I search and listen to a different podcast every single day. So I hear, right. all, and you know, there are literally over a half million podcasts out there, so there's no shortage but I want to hear different things, how people are doing things, what's working, what's not working. That's the only, it's part of the education. You know, I'm doing something right now that I've never done before. I'm in the middle of writing a novel. Um, I mean, like full length, you know, 400 page. For clarity, we're saying um, you've never done it before. Why? Where's the connection there? Uh, in that there, genre, um, you mean? Yeah, never, exactly. A psychological thriller. This is like a crime novel. I'm writing with Brandon Webb, my name is Seal Buddy. And, you know, I, 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 write, I write books that are like 100 pages uh, that, are, that are, you know, at, at high school level. I write books that are simple. I write books that are, you know, parables. I don't write psychological thrillers. And writing a novel, man, writing a full-length novel is a completely different animal in so many ways. It's like you've been taking walks around the block for years, and now you decide to climb K2 or, you know, or hike the Pacific Coast Trail. And so I've spent the last 10 years chewing up the best in crime fiction. I love crime fiction. And there are some amazing, phenomenal crime writers out there. And so I, I've been chewing it, chewing it, chewing it, chewing it, absorbing it, absorbing it, absorbing it you for 10 it. years. And now we'll, you know, now we'll see what comes out. <laughs> Hopefully it's good. Such a great point. Any entrepreneur, any entrepreneur has to mm -hmm. um, indulge themselves consistently yeah. into the uh, act and industry where they want to and are are thriving. It's perfect. You know, Stephen, Stephen King has this book on writing, which every writer knows and, every, and a lot of people who even aren't writers love and, and, and know. And one of the most arresting things about the book that caught you know, a lot of readers' eye was near the end of the book, he has a list of every book he read that year. That's it. Just his reading list. And his re if you read his reading list, you go, holy cow. His reading list is so broad in so many areas that are completely unlike what he writes, but they're just all fun, you know, top of the class, literary fiction, all this great stuff. And you think, yeah. oh, got it. The dude reads. I mean, he doesn't just yeah. read. I don't just sit around and read parables. I read stuff, you know, but it's the, 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 the criterion is the best quality. Don't read crap. Don't read junk. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the creative process, not only for you, which might seem a little um, obvious that there is one because writing is certainly uh, an art and a creative uh, pursuit, but I argue that any business owner is uh, in the creative process and pursuit, um, and it's a skill we can hone. I want to hear how you as a writer, because from my point of view, um, you might be in between books and not really, you know, having anything to write at the moment. Maybe you're, uh, you know, waiting for your next assignment to start, but certainly you have to keep busy every day. So how do you, um, what's your daily creative process like? What do you do to stay in that world? Or do you just vacation half of the year? 
Um, you, you know, I, I was I was inwardly laughing as you were starting to talk because I, I would love to be in that place in between where I'm waiting for the next project. For me, the reality of it is always that they're like overlapping and I've got oh, like five planes in the tarmac all waiting for the signal from the air traffic control tower to say, okay, you can take off. Okay, now you can. And I, I, I pray for the for the peaceful interlude. Um, <laughs> Good. But, yeah, but there are times where I can't write. Uh, where I just have to stop, where I, you know, as much as I would, I kind of need to make progress in this project, I, I just gotta, I'm full, I can't, I gotta stop. And what I do in those times, I mean, I have, I have, you know, work-life balance is a whole other thing. And I have my, my wife, who's my best friend, and we do all kinds of things that are, that are, are, are you know, are not me working, <laughs> just taking five hour, five mile walks or traveling or whatever stuff that we do, cooking together. But in terms of my own personal time, I read a bunch, as I said, I, and whenever I can't write, I, I put it down and read. I don't experience writer's block because whenever I do experience writer's block, I stop writing and I read. Now that's a simplification. There are also techniques I have to get past, you know, when, when, when writer difficulty comes. But um, I'll tell you for me, in terms of the creativity of it, uh, I email every day. I don't talk on the phone. I'm not much of a phone guy, but I'm a good email correspondent. I stay up with people on email. And for me, writing emails is like practice. I'll, sometimes I'll, I'll be corresponding with somebody who asks a question and I go back and that my email is like, you know, a few paragraphs long. And in that few paragraphs, there's an idea for the thing that I'm working on. Um, so I, I, I do a little writing every day and it's not always in a book. It often isn't a book, but sometimes it's an email. So I had a blog going for, uh, for a while. I haven't t worked in it for a year now. But that's another place where I, go. I always find places to go right where I'm at least using my fingers and my brain. Hmm. Um, last year, or no, actually two years ago now, I remember you and I connected like this when you released The Recipe, a story of loss, love, and the ingredients of greatness uh, with yeah. Chef Charles Carroll. Uh, yes. He was your co-writer there. Really great book, obviously. Um, but then I, I noticed that um, among, the, um, among the elements of this book and the journey of it, um, you, wrote a, you wrote a blog post that was titled, How Do You Get Five U.S. Presidents to Do You a Personal Favor? You Ask. <laughs> and my goodness, there is so much we can learn about that. Tell us about what that story is. And then I want to talk about how that applies by you ask uh, for anybody tuning in. I'll tell you the Charles and President story, and then I'll, I'll, I'll relate a quick one that it's parallel for me. So Charles, uh, Chef Charles, my, my co-author for the recipe, is a, uh, a culinary Olympian. He's been to the Culinary Olympics uh, eight times. He's won a bunch of gold medals. He is won awards all over the U.S. He's a highly, highly accomplished chef. He's not on TV, so you don't know his name. Um, he's not Bobby Flay. He's not, you know, whoever. But um, he is executive chef of one of the busiest country clubs in, in the nation in Houston. And um, so he's both a chef, but also an administrator slash coach slash mentor, because he has almost 100 employees in this, in this operation. Wow. And he's also an entrepreneur. He's been an entrepreneur his whole life. He's just such an entrepreneurial guy. So he was... Um, he wanted to mount a project to go to Afghanistan. This is back in, I don't remember when it was, Josh, 2010, 11, 12. I'm not sure. I, I forget the year, but it's on the blog. It's actually the, the most current blog post on my blog, so you can go read it. it um, he wanted to bring a project to feed the troops in Afghanistan. 
and bring them a, a floor show with entertainers and great food and cook demonstrations and gifts and messages from back home. He went over, he did one of these trips and he was so struck with the impact that it had on these guys and gals over there in, 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 uh, in the services that uh, he was so moved by his encounters with some of these, some of these service people that he came back, he wanted to do it again in a bigger way. And when he saw how much it meant to them to get messages from people back home, he said, I got to bring a message from the president. No, not the president, the presidents. He decided he wanted to get uh, U.S. presidents to record personal messages to the troops in Afghanistan for Chef Charles to bring over and, and give them. So, uh, I mean, I tell the whole story in the blog post, but he, he wanted to get every living president, which at the time was Bush Sr., Bush Jr., Carter, Clinton, and then uh, Obama, who was at that time in office. And uh, I mean, he's like a chef. It's like in uh, that, uh, what was that action movie Under Siege? The guy goes, I'm just a cook. Remember that? <laughs> he's just a chef. So he, uh, he somehow got all five presidents, including Obama, to take the time to sit down and record personal messages. He brought all five of them over with him to the, to the troops. Um, it's something that, that is right there in the first few chapters of The Go-Giver, when Joe is going to meet this guy Pindar, he's, he's kind of baffled that this famous, amazing, successful consultant would make time for him on a Saturday morning. And the guy basically says, you'd be surprised how often successful people will make time if you just ask. Mm. One of my favorite crime authors, this is the me story, one of my favorite crime authors living is a guy named Harry Bingham, who writes the Fiona Griffiths novels. He's a Brit. Um, the novels are set in Wales, and he's this amazing writer. It's an amazing series. And I was so in love with his books, I thought, I got to write him and tell him how much I love his books. So I got on his newsletter, and I got his address, and I wrote him, and, and I said, told him what I thought about his books. And we've been corresponding ever since, and I've made a new friend. He's like, this guy was too famous to, to, you know, to reach out and touch, but no, he's not. Nobody's too famous to reach, reach out and touch. I mean, if, if Charles can get five presidents, you can get whoever you need. I agree with that. Um, yet let's um, clarify that a little bit because there is a, there is a way to reach out, right? What is the way and not way to reach out? But again, whatever you, you want to do, whoever literally, I mean, especially today, the internet, come on, everybody is accessible. And yeah. I've, I, I've witnessed it for myself. I see it all the time. You'd be surprised how many people are willing to help you if you just ask, it can literally be that simple. But what are the surrounding elements that at least need to be in place so you have their attention? Well, that's a, I, I bet you have better answers for this than I do, Josh. But, um, you know, I think that the first is obviously you, 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 ha, you can't just reach out to somebody and say, hey, I want your help. Or, I, you know, you can't reach out with the first thing being, here's what I want. Correct. If you're going to reach out, the first thing you're going to reach out with is here's what I appreciate about what you've done and what's meant to me. Um, and it, when I reach out to someone like Harry Bingham, if I say, I, I love Fiona, I love your character. I love this. And here's why, here's what it's done for me. And if I, if I never hear back from him, you know, that's the end of the, of, of the exchange for the rest of my life, I'm good. I've let him know how much his work has impacted my life. And, I, and, I, and I've had that experience with it, with a, a few other of my favorite authors where I've just met, met them in person or online and said, oh my God, favorite book of mine, just amazing, here's why, I love your work, it's changed my life, and here's how. And they said, well, thank you very much. And that's it. You know what, I'm good with that. That's not a loss. 
So you can't go into it with the sense of, I need this person to pay attention to me and do this for me. Jeff Charles is, is an exception to the rule because <laughs> he's going after the specific thing. I don't know how he did that personally. <laughs> but, Amazing. but read my blog post because it tells the whole story. Yeah, we'll uh, certainly link to that. So that's the first thing, I think. And then, and then the second thing is you can't, be, you can't be demanding. You can't be, I need you to help me in this specific way. People have different ways that they may help. I have people who contact me and say, you know, I, I'd love to get in the phone with you and just, just like, you know, chat with you for like five minutes. Well, first of all, there is no such thing as a five-minute phone call. I've learned this, unless it's to the emergency room. Oh, goodness. Uh, and, and second of all, I, I, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I don't, get, I don't do phone. Here's what I'll do. I'll get an email correspondence with you. And, and I always answer back and I say, you know what? I'm really sorry. I don't do phone, but I'll do email. I can do that. And they say, can you contact me on Messenger? No, I'm sorry. I can't do that. That's not what I do. Here's what will work for me. And in that context, I will, I will help you to the extent that I'm able to do that. Um, and so y y you need to respect what works for them if, if, if you're going to try to get, get in a two-way street. Right. I also think the big factor is your why, making that clear to the other person. Yeah. But first, you have to make that clear to yourself. Really, if I'm reaching out to John David Mann and saying, can I get you on the phone for five minutes, which already, like you said, there's no such thing as a five-minute phone call. Right. Next book title, by the way. <laughs> Just <laughs> saying. Just saying. Right. There's no such thing as a five-minute phone call. A parable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Good. I like um, that. Yeah. I like that. Something there. Something there. Uh, so um, uh, if, if, if I email you and say, hey, uh, can I get you on the phone for five minutes? I want to pick your brain. That's so like, no, I don't know who you are. But also, if I have a legitimate why and a need that I can present that also combining what you said, of course, wait, you know, John, I've, I, I've, uh, I followed you. I've watched you. I love that you do this. This is how it relates to what I'm doing. This is how I connect to it. But this is really why, and phrase it how you can, this is why I'm reaching out to you. I find that if I can just figure out X, Y, and Z, I'll be better off to do A, B, and C. And I think you know about X, Y, and Z. So if you have five minutes, that might be beneficial, something like and, that, knowing your and if, why. And if I say, here's what I'm up to, I mean, it, people write to me and say, I, here, I'm writing, I want to write a parable. Um, you know, if they say, I want to write a parable, would you, uh, would you write it with me? <laughs> now, I, I get that a lot, believe it or I'm not. I'm sure, I'm sure. I, I have a great idea for a parable. Would you, would you write it with me? And what I'll typically write back is, um, you know, is let them, in all likelihood, that probably isn't going to happen um, because, the, again, tarmac, planes, yeah. air traffic control. But, but I'll, what I'll typically say is, you know, if you have a great idea for a parable, I'll look at the idea. Tell me your idea and I'll give you my feedback. Um, I, I'll even, sometimes I'll even say, if you've got a chapter, if you've got a page, if you've got a, I'll, I will look at it, give you my feedback. I have had it happen where I, I for a friend, I looked at a, at a book to give him feedback and I ended up getting into contact with this guy and totally rewriting his book. That's, you know, a rare thing, but it, it can escalate. Mm. So, the, the simple request, would you just look at my idea um, and give me your feedback? Uh, you know, it's got a, it's, it's a doable thing. I can do that. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes, sometimes I can. Depends. Yeah. My brand, the hidden entrepreneur of course was founded on the idea that I spent a lifetime in hiding, hiding all of my power, my ability in exchange for seeking that approval, showing up as the person I believed others expected me to be remaining in this box with that label um, and using fear as an excuse not to achieve everything that I knew I should and was capable of doing. Can you tell us about a time when 
you were just frozen in fear in your life, but you knew you had to work right through that. <sighs> Boy. Um, you know, there was a time when I was in, involved in business, I was in a, uh, I was in the world of network marketing. I was both writing about it and I was also involved as a, as a business person and I was making really good money and I had been for a decade and I, I was completely comfortable with that life because the business that I was in was going really, really well and it started to crash. And I found that nothing that I could do, nothing that I tried, everything in my bag of tricks, everything I knew how to do as a leader, as a teleconference person, as, a, as a, anything I did, nothing made a difference. The thing was crashing. The thing was crashing. The thing was crashing. And it crashed. And I found myself in a place of, oh my God, I have no idea what to do for income. And I, I, could, I could see the writing on the wall within a couple of years. I wasn't able to pay rent. Um, so. I had to actually sort of assess, take, take a, a look around and say, okay, now what can I do in a completely different field? What can I do brand new? I got to start from scratch in my thirties or forties, whenever this was. And uh, that can be terrifying. This has happened to me more than once. It's happened to me several times where what I was doing started to crash and I knew I had to find something else. Um, I've had books that failed and paid me nothing. Uh, I've, 30 books I've written, only a handful have actually been financially successful. I think all of them have been successful, you know, in the literary sense, I'm proud of all of them. They all have readers that love them, but only a handful have been financially successful. So there have been, you know, mo many moments in my life, that was one dramatic one, where I've been facing this financial hole and saying, oh my God, how do I, how do I uh, what do I do? It's up to me. The, the, the beauty of the entrepreneurial life is also the challenge of the entrepreneurial life, which is that it's up to you. <laughs> love that phrase you know let me um let me repeat that for a minute you said 30 books written to date and only a few have been financially successful um but i guess that that is that's that's what we're all doing right you just have to keep 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 yeah. and then all you want are a few things to to drive you forward that's right and and you know the first thing that has to be said is Obviously, you can't go into something like this purely for money. That's just not going to work. I don't care who you are. I don't care how, you know, what genre you're in. If you're doing romance and fiction, I don't care what it is. You can't do it just for money because it won't work. But it has to work financially because you've got, you got a life to, to, to support. <clears throat> so um, you, there, are, there are satisfactions and successes that I get out of a book, out of writing a book, that are separate from financial. And it, it, it would be the same thing with a business. If I started a restaurant that ultimately closed its doors, but, you know, but, but, and I have restaurateurs, I have a lot of restaurateur friends who I know this, but there was, there was fulfillment in that. There was satisfaction in that, but it didn't work financially. That's my experience in writing books. I've had a lot of books that didn't work financially. And what I mean by that is I got paid in advance and the book never earned more than that. So I get paid... Typically, I get paid in advance. Unless you're self-publishing, this doesn't happen. But if you're, if you're in a publisher, then you get paid in advance, which may be a lot of money or a little tiny bit of money. I've had tiny advances and big advances. But you get a certain amount of money that's supposed to pay you to write the book. Then you write the book. They publish the book. It goes out. And all the royalties that it earn, earns first go back to pay the publisher back your advance. So first, you're earning nothing. 
you know, the first 10,000 copies or 50,000 copies or whatever it is, pay you nothing because you're paying back the advance. Then, once the advance is paid back, they call that earning out. If it starts to earn out and now pay me an income stream, that's a financially successful book. That's the equivalent to earning a profit in mm, an entrepreneurial mm -hmm, event, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So most of my books have never earned out their advance. Wow. Just a fact of life. Wow. Um, and those few that have, you know, the Go-Giver books, some of my Brandon Webb books, you know, a couple of other books, uh, this latte factor that just came out today, this book is going, this book is going to earn out its man. This book's going to do really, really well. It's already doing really, really well. I'm really happy with that. I can say. But again, it's number, but it's number 30. And so it's the same deal with, with entrepreneurship. You know, you may start 12 businesses in your career. You may start five. You may start 20. I don't know. It depends. You have to know going in that it's like the acorn tree scattering the acorns. I mean, the oak tree scattering the acorns. Not all of those are going to turn into trees. Um, not all those businesses are going are to flourish financially or even work financially. Um, and that's got to be okay. You've got to know that's your business model because what you're going for is that one or those few that do work. And often they're going to work out of the learning you've had, the experience you've had from the so-called failures. Yeah, and now that you have 30 acorns planted, each new one now, you have a, a better shot or a more significant yeah. shot because of the history that only came from the time you put in. Yes, that's exactly right. And also, you know, every book I've written that hasn't done well financially has been an extreme course in writing for me had been an extreme learning experience. Imagine that. Yeah. I mean, and, I, and that's not just lip service. I mean, I've learned things about edit, self-editing, things about structuring a book, things about what, you know, what to take out and what to leave in, things about what structures don't work and do work, wow. titles work, don't work, concepts work, don't work. I've learned so much in every one of those books. All of that is compost, you know. And for necessary. The, necessary. Yeah, necessary. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Talk to me about your core message. The way you put it is that you have the capacity to shape your own life. Yeah, and, I, and I, as I describe this, I wanna temper it again with the arrogance of a teenager and the humility of a Buddhist monk. There is an extent to which you have complete power over your life, complete control over your life. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have the choices that you make every day. The, and the choices are often, we, we talk about this a lot in The Go-Giver. It's one of the core messages of The Go-Giver. Um, you know, uh, Pindar says to Joe, uh, you have a lot more to do with how your life turns out than you think. And, he, and he's, what I something that I learned early on in my entrepreneurial life is before I was writing any books, was how powerful our thoughts are. By the way, this is something that I learned early on in my world of sales and was writing about in my early newsletters and then in my early books that I totally clicked with my Navy SEAL buddy, Brandon Webb. Because when he, he rewrote the Navy SEAL sniper course with his, with his, his uh, teaching partner, his, he says his signal contribution, the, the, the prime difference that he made in that course was introducing a program of mental management, um, of self-talk. Um, so, you know, it sounds a little touchy-feely. We're talking about Navy SEAL snipers. It is not touchy-feely. It, it is as real as blood and bullets. I mean, and it's true in, in every world that the things we tell ourselves, 95% of which are silent and only in thought, um, 
but also even when you hear them in your words, the things we tell ourselves are so powerful or so potent. And you have the choice to change those. Somebody on a podcast recently asked me, what bothers you? What irritates you? And my answer was negative people. Negative people drive me nuts. <laughs> because I, I, I encounter people who are telling themselves failure constantly, who are saying, oh man, you're never going to get over that broken leg. They were saying this to my wife. My wife and I got the flu uh, like two weeks ago. And a friend of hers was saying, oh, you're going to have this for six weeks. Oh, like, goodness. I know. No, yeah. I'm sorry. We're going we're gonna to go three days. How's that work for you? And that's what we did. So <laughs> a common theme in my, in my writing, no matter who I'm writing with, is that you have an extraordinary level of control over the path, uh, the way your life unfolds. You are, in, in essence, writing a book, whether you're a writer or not. You're writing a story, and the story is your life. Now, where the humility of a Buddhist monk comes in is there's also God and the universe and the world and everything that isn't you. <laughs> and there are people out there who know you better than you know yourself. And there are experiences out there that are designed to nudge you in directions you haven't thought of. And sometimes those directions are the right directions. All the greatest things that have happened in my life not one of them has come about as a result of my plan. I have to say Bob Berg ruined my career. I was, I was planning on being a screenwriter, man. I was on the way to Hollywood. And Bob said, would you write this book with me? And I'm like, oh, man, pesky, irritating. No, I don't have time for this. Go-giver, I don't get this. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't understand this concept. Um, so, but I, I thought I'd give it a shot with him. And so it changed my life, changed my career, changed my past. Uh, my wife did not, you know, all the greatest things in my life have come about as, the, as a result of the universe saying, I know you think you know what you're doing, but eh, eh, try, you know, surprise. Um, so, you know, you control your own path, but there's also things that are constantly nudging you in directions that you need to listen. Extraordinary. I feel like we can go all day, literally. I know. Thank you for that, by the way. Um, but I will leave you with this final question. John David Mann, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, I, he, he, because of him, the world was different. He, ma he made a difference. I, I'd like people to say, to, I'd like it to say, uh, by the way, one of my favorite endings in a movie is the last line of the Royal Tenenbaums. When, uh, when you see the, the writing on his tombstone, and it's something like, you know, to Royal Tenen, here lies Royal Tenenbaum, who died courageously um, protecting, saving his family on a sinking battleship, <laughs> which was totally not true at all, totally made up. But it was a great metaphor for what he actually kind of did, that scoundrel. Um, I think on my gravestone, I, I would just love it to say he, he, he made a difference in millions of people's lives. Mm. Wow. Well, this has certainly literally made a difference in my life. Again, did not disappoint. I was thrilled uh, when you said, yes, you'll come back on. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being you, for doing what you do. Thank you so much. I love being here. We'll do it again. I appreciate that. I will look forward to it. I appreciate that. And I look forward to doing it again with everybody tuning in, whether it's for the live broadcast or on the recorded podcast, if it's on Apple, Google, or Spotify. Head on over, leave a review. I love reading your thoughts. Well, that's it for today. We're going to do this again before too long. Thanks for tuning in. Until we meet again, go get them.
Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.